Hey everybody, today I talked to Nick Donovan of GVM Law here in Napa. He's an attorney, business attorney. I asked him here to talk about private placement, so we do a bit of that. That is a means by which you can sell minority share in your business. We talk about the pros and cons of that. We also touch on some business formation issues around getting legal advice. It's really important if you're a business owner to get good legal advice throughout the lifetime of the business, formation, exit, and everything in between. In the wine business, you also have to be careful with trademark and compliance. There's a lot going on. So having a good lawyer is very important. And the truth of the matter is that like every human population, it's a bell curve. There are very good attorneys. There are also very bad attorneys. And most attorneys are somewhere in the middle. And I will tell you that a bad attorney has cratered deals that I've I've worked on. I've had that happen a couple of times, different attorneys, with different mistakes, but same result. And for example, I did a transaction where the attorney for the client was also on the board and he was very difficult to work with on the very simple engagement agreement that I signed with my clients. So much so that I almost quit right then and there. But I liked the owner. I wanted to be helpful. So we went forward and we found a buyer. And the thing about negotiations, there's a lot to it. But one of the general principles is that if you start with the entire universe of things that need to be negotiated and as time goes on, you narrow the field of battle. And um, uh, so this fellow, we got a non-binding letter of intent. And we were almost through all the issues. And then he decided he wanted to bring up something new. And um, the answer <laughs> or the buyer side CFO was, if this is going to be this hard to get a non-binding term sheet negotiated, we'll never get through a contract. And so we're out. And he wasn't wrong. <laughs> I could not argue with him. And so we lost that deal. So it was a shame. And so it is important to find a good lawyer. I'm not sure how to do that. I think if if in your initial meeting with them, they do all the talking and not a lot of listening, that might be a good time to keep on moving on. And Nick and I have a fun conversation with ends with his story of how he is actually an investor and owner in a, a cool celebrity brand. So being up close and personal with the issues in the wine business does not mean that you are not going to take the leap as Nick did. So Nick's a great attorney. We have a good conversation. Today we have Nick Donovan from Gaw Van Mail. Nick and I have known each other for, I'm not sure how long, Nick, maybe 15 years, something like yeah, that? Yeah, probably about at least that long, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And you're with a, a, a local specialist firm called Gaw Van Mail. And, and can you just tell us briefly about the firm and your personal practice? Yeah, sure. And we've rebranded to GVM Law, LLP. And the okay. firm is... We're, our main office is located on the corner of First Street and Main Street in Napa, right downtown. The firms, we just last year celebrated our 50th anniversary as a law firm. And it was set up to be half estate planners and half business attorneys with the idea of representing high net worth people and mainly families that own privately held businesses. And so wineries are a great fit. We also represent 
lots of industries outside of the wine industry, but I but our wine is our biggest industry that we represent as a firm. So I started my practice as an M&A attorney in San Francisco at a large law firm. I worked with tech companies for a while, which is a great experience, but loved when I transitioned to Napa and started working with wine industry people. Carol, I'm sure you have the same experience. It's a good, it's a good group of people for the most part. Yeah. It's not to say they don't work hard, but you know, everyone seems to enjoy what they're doing a little bit and I think has a, has a, a genuine love for the wine industry. My practice today is still M&A. So we do a lot of winery and vineyard deals, basically. So we represent both buyers and sellers of wineries and vineyards. Uh, I also do private placements, which I think is maybe what we're going to primarily talk about today, which is wineries and other companies raising money through the sale of equity, equity ownership in their company. And excited to talk about the how that applies to the wine industry and does it work. Um, I also do general corporate uh, general counsel for a number of wineries in the Valley as well. Great. You're busy. So yeah. I, I appreciate you joining us under that uh, very long list of things that uh, you're, you're doing. Um, no, and yeah, I did, I did invite you to talk about private placements because one of the things that has come up as a very important aspect of being successful in the wine business is having the right mix of capital. Long-term yes. would be either term debt, equity, but and short-term debt, and private placement as part of the equity piece, potentially. I don't know anything about it. When you told me that you did it, I was very happy to uh, pass business away when the opportunity arose. Yes, um, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> but for the listeners who may have an idea that they could raise some portion of capital through private placement. Now, you did say that we're not going to get, we, I think we agreed not to get into too much detail because it's yeah. just fairly dry. Securities law compliance and all that. I'll, I'll oh God. keep that out oh, of it. Oh Lord. I had to get, we were an investment bank for a bit and I had to get a series 24 securities license at one point and it was the right. first exam I took in my very long life. <laughs> anyway, so let's keep it simple for the folks who just quickly are thinking that raising a minority interest in their business through an equity raise would be a way to go. Yeah, that sounds good. As you said, it's a good introduction about the types of capital for a company. Private placement is a sale of, we're, we're not dealing with public companies, these are all private companies. So it's a sale of securities. If you're an LLC, it's membership interest. If you're a corporation, it's stock in your company. And I'll keep the dry stuff out of it, but there is a lot of, it's, you do want to hire an attorney. If you're thinking about this, there's a lot of securities law compliance that is part of it. You need to comply with both uh, state and federal uh, securities laws. That's the reason and the need for attorneys to help you through that. But that all aside, compliance aside, just as a concept, you the first, I think, thing to consider is when you have another owner in your company, you're giving that person a lot of rights with regard to the company. So they have inspection rights. They can ask you, you are required to give them certain information pursuant to law. They can ask for a whole lot of other information. You owe them fiduciary duties as minority shareholders or as members in your LLC. So th these become important people in your, <laughs> in the life of the company, because you do owe them all these obligations. So when you make decisions as a company, the thing to keep in mind is their interests matter. If you're doing things that that benefit you to the detriment of the minority owners, that certainly gives them a right to complain and obviously bring a lawsuit if they flee. It would never come, doesn't come to that, but they do have that right. So so that's, it's a, 
it's something, it's a decision not to be taken lightly because even as opposed to borrowing from a bank, the bank has covenants, you've got to comply with certain things. The bank isn't a, a co-owner of your company at that point. So I, I think that's fundamentally the most important thing to keep in mind that you're bringing on. There, there are a lot of uh, responsibilities when you bring on these new owners. The So the, the benefit, I would say, there, there's I think there are some drawbacks to wineries in particular raising money in this way that I will touch on. The benefit, what the wine industry has going for it is there, there just are a lot of people who are interested in owning a part of a winery. My older brother owns, he, he loves to talk about his small interest that he owns in racehorses because it's a cool <laughs> thing to talk about. So I think some of that, or a lot of that goes on when you're raising money and people understand that, hey, I'm going to own a, a piece of this cool wine brand or, or this winery, this great location that I love to go to. It's the interest is there. The doors are open and people are you know willing to listen to the pitch more than they would be, I think, for other industries. Yeah, uh, my and, dad, and also, uh, I'm just going to side comment. My dad, back in the day, was a shareholder in Shalone, back when oh, it was yeah. publicly traded. And yes. he, he did not care at all about what the stock was doing. He was a shareholder in Shalone, so he could go to their annual party, yeah. post himself up at the lobster table or sorry, the the oyster table, and yep. eat oysters all night. So that was why he was a investor in Shalom. Yeah, perfect example. Uh, the wineries that have raised money through equity financing, they all, I think, appreciate that to some extent. And so they do, they have great annual meetings for their shareholders, and they have good fun parties that the shareholders are invited to. And some even pay dividends in wine, which is great for a number of reasons in terms of using that inventory and the credit you get for that. And also as a return on investment. So you're right. That really, that's the bottom line is that people don't, or I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of investors don't look at this the same way that they look at other investing, where it is all about the return on the investment and how much you're making. And is it a good use of your money? It's, hey, I, I own this cool thing. I talk about it at parties, which is no small advantage. It's great to have that interest yeah. and it's great to have that flexibility. And, you know, I've had clients who I will not name. They haven't, wine, the wine industry is your podcast. I think yeah. the, the story of the podcast is, is difficult. And so there are a lot of wineries haven't, aren't profitable or aren't very profitable. And they've been able to raise money again and again from investors just because of the interest in the brand. So that that's that's a benefit. I, a drawback is just the nature of the business, the nature of the wine business. If you think about it, typically, my background, tech companies, they do lots of rounds of financing. Usually the goal is to become a public company. So I'm buying equity in this company as a private company. When it goes public, I'm going to do really well, and I'm going to have a public market to sell my equity and my stock in. That's not, there are very, very few wineries who are public companies. Correct. So right off the top, that sort of pathway, why you'd buy into rounds of financing, it really doesn't exist. So the, the wineries that have done raise money through private placements and been successful, we've put in place, if it's not clear from when you buy in that, hey, here's the exit strategy, you have a right to put this investment back to me in 10 years, That's that usually is not a right that companies give to investors. So the successful wineries have ended up buying out those investors later on at a much higher you know, valuation. They've done well, but at some point the investors realize there's, it's not a liquid investment in a public company or excuse me, a private company that's going to stay private. So you, you end up working out those types of deals or 
they just remain like your dad as owners of of the winery for a long time and and enjoy the parties. I, I say this sort of equity investment is the the cheapest money if you're going to fail. Yes, because you don't have to pay them back, and it's the most expensive money if you're going to succeed because they're not going to just take a little uh, coupon of interest. They're going to get a, a significant upside. Yeah, and then of course you've got people to deal with. But if it's if it's what you need to do to get to where you want to go, then by all means. But I I do think, and I I didn't I wasn't clear if I heard this, but the one huge mistake I hear often or see or whatever is we're forming a company let's figure out how we're going to split all the the proceeds and the and how and you know when we sell this and all the income and this is going to be so great there the better co- uh, agreements in this regard also talk about how do we deal with failure how do you know how do we exit partners when we want them to go or when they want to go all those things really if you bake those in then that's the best way to go yeah yeah, that's a great point. It is helpful because investors, if they're in any industry, you want to understand what the business is, but you also want to understand how you're going to get your money out in the end. What's the exit for this? And again, because wineries don't become public companies, it's a negotiated exit. And so I have, I've represented wineries where they had a lead investor putting in a significant amount of money. And that lead investor said, hey, I, I want to negotiate the, the documents so that there is an exit for me. One way or another, there's an exit. Either I can put my equity to you, meaning force you to buy it at negotiated, lots of negotiation over what the value is or how you figure it out at that time. Or and, and companies at the same time may want to have a right to, to buy that equity back from an investor. Like you said, it can be the most expensive money if you're doing if you're doing really well. So in order to maybe stem that, if, if things are going well and there's been a nice return, for investors, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you out now. I'm gonna pay you back with a nice return and get back to 100% ownership or some some greater ownership on the part of the owners. So you're, but you're right. It's the best documents for contemplate how if how are these investors going to get out at some point. But you'd be surprised at how many don't have those provisions. So oh, there's some very famous ones. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. And it does lead to it's led to some famous disputes in Napa for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I thought it'd be good to talk a bit more generally about your the role of attorneys in in entrepreneurship in general, because of course I, I think as far as that goes. There's some special issues in the wine business, but just as a general rule, starting first with my particular line of work, M&A, briefly, what's, what do you, when you go in, you're called in, I said to Mario Zapponi and I had a, a conversation for this podcast earlier, I said, the happiest day in our professional careers is when we call in the attorneys. It, when, it, when you're called into an M&A deal, what is your role? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, you know, that if I'm, so a lot of times when people are selling their wineries, it's the first time they've done it. They're new, and so in meeting someone for the first time, I'm saying, okay, here's, you know, my job here. If you're a seller, for example, is obviously to maximize proceeds. You're going to be working on that. Carol, your M&A advisor is going to. That's her focus. My job is to to reduce your risk so that you keep as much of that money as you can. So as a seller of a any company, but a winery or a vineyard the buyer is going to ask you to make representations and warranties. Tell me a lot about this company or this vineyard. And I, I want to be able to come back at you if I discover 
something later, some if it's a vineyard, some environmental issue, some other issue that I didn't know about. If it's a business, lots of things can come up from the past and create risk to, to the new owner. So I want you seller to be on the hook for that. So a lot of the negotiation or a lot of the important negotiation is just to, to limit that risk as much as possible. On the other side, if you're buying something, you want to companies, wineries, real estate, it's there are complicated aspects to it, right? So I want to know that, of course, I the legally title to everything that I think I'm buying is going to pass to me, which can be harder than it seems. But also I, I need to do some legal diligence. What's what are the restrictions on this property? What are the what are the applicable laws that I should be aware of that might restrict what I want to do with this property? There's legal diligence involved, especially on the buyer side. And that's what buyers care about. And on the flip side, buyers are saying, I, you know, I want you to tell me everything you know about this property, but if there's some problem out there, I want you to be responsible for it, seller. So that's where a lot of the negotiation and the back and forth between buyers and sellers is. And also the drier stuff in terms of taxes, unfortunately, are always a problem. <laughs> buyers want the best tax treatment for as a buyer. Sellers want the same thing as a seller, so they keep more of the proceeds. Our firm is, we have tax attorneys in the firm. That, that's their specialty too. That's a necessary part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and the thing with the taxes is it's definitely a zero-sum game. Yes. So every dollar you push in your direction is, is taking money out of somebody, the other guy's pocket. But That's exactly um, right. The IRS is, in this context, they they don't, they just say, whatever you agree to, report it the same way and we'll respect it, basically, because someone, <laughs> it's what's good for you is bad for, what's good for the buyer is bad for the seller. So it, it leads to a good negotiation over that type of thing. Oh, yeah. Fun stuff. Yeah. No, I... I one of the things that I've encountered is the tension between the, the risk analysis from, I only really represent sellers. So the tension between the risks of continuing to own it versus the risks of some, your attorney is rightly, because that's their job saying, okay, here's this long tail risk. If you sign up for this particular part of the you know indemnities. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, sure. But if you keep owning this, what's happening? <laughs> so, right. It's all it was a balance. But I was thinking this morning, getting ready to talk to a, a lawyer, that actually that's a kind of a fine balance for, for uh, somebody because they've got somebody like myself who our financial interests are aligned with the seller, right? We, we don't get, we don't really get paid if the deal doesn't go. Right. We, uh, it, it, versus the, the attorneys are a little bit more neutral on that. They're going to get paid for their advice. And I was mostly thinking, but actually, when you think about it, that really works quite well. As long as everybody's clear and communicating and trusting their advisors, that that balance between people who's really got a lot of skin in the game and those that don't is probably the right balance. When I thought about it a little bit, getting get yeah. past my, com my complaints. You know, it is good to have different advice from people who are motivated differently. You're right. And honestly, I one thing I would say to anyone is you do want a good M&A advisor, a good, in, in Carolus, I like working with you and I, Mario's great to work with as well. People who have integrity, they're, of course, you're motivated. Your business is being paid on the sale of the, the wineries that you represent. But you can get into a bad dynamic if you're, for example, real estate brokers. Some of them are not, they don't have the integrity that, that you do. So if you think about it, all they care about is selling the property, right? And they it doesn't the risk that the seller has going forward, they're they're not going to spend it. They don't want to hear it. So you do get in these difficult situations sometimes where 
if you have an unscrupulous broker, was the attorney, you're saying, whoa, the buyer is pushing too hard on this. They're asking for too much. You're this is way too much risk. It's out of, it's not market. This isn't something you should be, you know, you should be agreeing to. And I, we should push back. And the broker saying, well, let's not jeopardize the deal. Let's not, you've got a bird in the hand. Let's make you, that tension is, I guess it could be helpful for, it's good to have some tension sometimes, but that's where you get into some difficult, where the attorneys end up disliking bad brokers because they see that they're not thinking about what's best for the seller at all. Um, and they're bad negotiators, if that's the yeah. case too. Like you, you can't yeah. negotiate if you're not willing to walk away from the table. That's and right. and yeah, that's just lousy negotiation among many other issues. But and, and honestly, it's as terrifying as it can be. I just that's my favorite part of the job is the negotiation. Yeah, managing the negotiation. It's it's crazy sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you're negotiating the interesting stuff, which is the money and the kind of key business terms. And similarly, I I like the negotiation on the legal side. Yeah. Hopefully with clients present and everyone there trying to persuade everyone that what you're asking for is reasonable and fair or more reasonable than the other side. And it's it's the fun part of the job. Yeah. And I will say also that I very much enjoy working with you because you don't seem to have a lot of ego in the process, which I think gets yeah. creates a lot of problems. If if an attorney is really trying to show everybody how clever they are, it's really deadly. Yeah. And I appreciate your kind of low key practical um, approach to the whole thing. So oh, I, think I, I, I <laughs> Thank appreciate you. that. A lot of my my I I agree with you. A lot of my felt my colleagues, my legal brothers and sisters are difficult to work with. Law school attracts a certain type of person sometimes. Yeah, but yes, very. I, I, we know what we're saying. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I thought because you're so steeped in the industry and I, we've had these conversations with a number of advisors of various stripes to the industry. If you wanted to just share your ideas on how to be successful in the business or it, it or how, what are the key risks? How do people fail? What are, from a legal perspective or your own perspective as an advisor, what do you see? Yeah, yeah. And I do, you brought this up earlier and I, I what's the, just generally, what's the role of attorneys? And I think, I do think as, as much as it's a cost that no one likes to pay legal fees, but when you set up a business, or you're set, whether it's a, a wine brand, a, a brick and mortar winery, really any business, set it up right in the beginning. Because if the, I think Gary Erickson wrote about this, he's a, we've worked with him in the past. He wrote in his book, Hey, the worst mistake I ever made was not setting things up correctly. And as soon as I was successful with Cliff Bar, I had all these problems that I had to solve and they became very expensive problems because of our success. So it really is worth saying, okay, talk to, hire an attorney, set things up the right way. So you don't have big problems in the future that you weren't even thinking of. But okay, that is that sort of pitch aside for attorneys. The, it's just that you can, you really have to run a tight, be a good business person. I don't, I know how to say it. There's some, it's tempting if you're new to the wine industry, you want, it's, let me get the best of everything. I, I have a client who I'm working with now who very successful in another industry coming in out, but I want, I want the best. I want to hire the best consulting winemaker and I want to, Everything is going to be, I, I want to I, I hire brand consultants to do, and you can get very upside down. So I think just how it's as boring as it is to say this, think of the bottom line. 
yeah. make sure yeah. your projections are tight, pencil it out because you really can get upside down. And, you know, that's a basic advice, but I think even in wine industry is even less forgiving than other industries in terms of how, you know, how you can get upside down financially very easily. And the second thing is it's keep in mind how hard it is to sell wine. If you have a mix of put aside direct to consumer, which is a great model selling directly. If you want to sell through distribution, you're, you have to sell the wine is sold three times. You have to sell it to the distributor. The distributor has to sell it to a retailer and the retailer has to sell it to the end consumer. And think about it. Just appreciate the difficulty in that where having a good wine is not enough. You need a story. You need, there has to be something about your brand in particular, that's going to resonate with all of those buyers and in particular, the end consumer. And how do you really give some thought to how you're differentiated from lots of other people who are trying to sell wine? And that's that focus. I think the people I've seen who are successful, they, they get that they have a real brand proposition uh, that they it's easy for them to tell that story or talk about where the wine comes from and why, why it's great versus lots of other brands. So again, basic advice, don't underestimate how hard the, the selling side of things are because I see people that's, they just assume that once they have this great product, it's going to, it's easy to sell at the back end. And it, it, it really is not unless you're certain brands catch fire, but they do for a reason usually. And yeah. It's, you know, we've been getting the, anybody listening to this podcast for with any consistency is going to um, learn that there are some themes here with regard to how to be successful coming from lots of different people who've taken lots of different perspectives, but they land at the same place, which is make sure you have enough capital, make sure you understand yeah. what it's going to take, make sure you're, that you don't, that if you build it, they will come. Strategy yes. is most likely going to get you in trouble. So yeah, no, it's a tough business. Are you, do, do you invest in the wine business yourself personally or? <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. So I, I'm one of the owners of Wade Cellars, which is a brand that my partner, my law partner, also my wine partner, Jamie Watson, and I started with Dwayne Wade, the basketball player. So oh, it's been, yeah, nice. it's been fun and also a lot of work and we have had success. It's been a, it's been a slow process. It's going well. And that was, it was funny because just as I said, you would think this is great. It's Dwayne Wade is athlete, really genuinely loves the industry, is very hands-on, is doing this with us. He he has a desire. We saw that. That's the reason we wanted to partner with him. But at the very end, when selling wines, you get, we got lumped in for a long time with, hey, this is just a celebrity brand. Lots mm. of celebrities just slap their names on a wine brand are not very involved. They're just selling their name, getting some small royalty or something like that. And so everyone, we had to get past, get over that hurdle with every single distributor that we wanted to talk to. And that was always the question, is this really, is Dwayne involved in this or is he not? And we had to convince everyone that, no, he truly, he's here. He's here doing harvest with us. He is on the road selling wine. He spends a lot of his own time and money investing in this. And so finally, I think we've, that people believe us now. That's exciting. After seeing all the success and failure, you've jumped in with both feet. And I think that what I'm hearing from the success of this brand is that authenticity is yes. vital. So um, that's so exactly right. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, at the end of our time, was there any the last words of wisdom you wanted to share? I just want to say thank you, Theo. Thanks for having me. I, I 
really have enjoyed working with you as as I've said, and it's great to connect. And I, I think this is great to, if nothing else says, Hey, know what you're getting into. You hear this advice and know what you're getting into. If you're thinking about joining the wine industry. And I do, despite all the risks and all the potential setbacks, I, my last comment is there's a reason people still do it. It's worth it. It is a wonderful industry and it's a wonderful product and I love it. And I know you do too. And if you can navigate all this there, there is, it, it can be worth it. A lot of rewards. Thank you very much for joining me, Nick. And we'll thank you uh, so much, Carol. See you around. Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you found this episode enjoyable, we'd really love to have you as a follower. And we're on almost all of your favorite podcast platforms. So if you could take a moment and subscribe or follow, we'd really appreciate it. Also, if you have any questions for Carol, please email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.